You are entering the Freedom Hut. Cheerio, Trump is visiting the UK, and the liberal media's freaking out about it. We'll talk about that and oh so much more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. Buck Sexton. Permission. Decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. Great. You're a great American. Again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. I think I can speak for three hours without a phone call. Try doing that sometime. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Mr. President, as we look to the future, I'm confident that our common values and shared interests will continue to unite us. Tonight, we celebrate an alliance that has helped to ensure the safety and prosperity of both our peoples for decades, and which I believe will endure for many years to come. While the world has changed, we are forever mindful of the original purpose of these structures. Nations working together to safeguard a hard-won peace. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Oh, hello. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, indeed. There you have Queen, Queen of England, telling everybody about the very important relationship between England, Great Britain, and the United States. Uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting stuff. Producer Mike told me some, some facts about this before we came on. Mike, how many, how many people, how many presidents have been invited to this special banquet with the queen? Uh, Trump's the third. Um, it's Only the a, third? Yeah, it's, it seems to be a, it's a rare honor for U.S. President um, Bush and Obama have been the only two others. And I think they only hold two banquets a year. So ah, I bet they serve tea and crumpets. Yeah, I hope they do. Not to be concerned with, not to be uh, rather... Confused with tea and strumpets, which is a whole no. other thing. Or tea no, and tasty different. cakes. Uh, so, yes, indeed. Uh, we have, yes, indeed, everyone. We have Trump over in the UK. We'll talk later on about some of the, some of the fallout from this with uh, the media baiting Trump into, and it's so easy, and of course he's going to do it, getting into it with Sadiq Khan and getting into it with, uh, not, not really getting into it with Meghan Markle. They're being, being fake, fake news. They're being fake news on that one. Don't trust him. You can't trust them. Bunch of sketchy libs. You never know what they're up to. Uh, let's now get into the, the latest in the saga of spying and Trump campaign undermining and the abuse of authority and all the other terrible things that happened as a result of the Russia collusion delusion. We have a little a little bit of uh, movement on this because the preparations are underway for the left to try and convince the American people that there's really nothing, nothing to see here, no big issue, other than how Bill, how Barr is a, a, a terrible person, of course. He's a terrible person. Um, and that's because he has said some things that are, that really hit home. I mean, I discussed with you a little bit last week that, that interview uh, where Barr, he was dropping bombs. I mean, you go back, it's worth watching the whole thing. It was on CBS. And he's not overexcited about anything. He's not he's not stretching the truth. He's not grandstanding. He's just saying, look, this is this is the deal. You know, everybody dies. Uh, that's his line. Oh, that was awesome. That was awesome. I, I, I think that this is the guy we need in this role. But here are just just a few of as, as we get into the, the the effort to counter message it over the weekend, which a lot of Democrats will get Mark Warner and others 
running around trying to make this guy seem like he's, oh, he's a toady for the president and he's a bad guy. He's doing all these things he shouldn't be doing. They never tell us what he's doing that's bad, just that he's the president's man. and Yeah, stuff like that. But here's what Bill Barr had to say about the ruling class here in D.C. Play 12. You don't think that they've committed treason? That is a legal matter, right. But you have concerns about how they conducted the investigation? Yes, but, you know, when you're dealing with official government contact, intent is frequently a murky issue. Uh, I'm not suggesting people uh, did what they did necessarily because of uh, conscious nefarious motives. Sometimes people can convince themselves that what they're doing is in the, the higher interest, the better good. They don't realize that what they're doing is really antithetical to the democratic system we have. They start viewing themselves as the guardians of the people that are more informed and sensitive than everybody else. The guardians of the people that are more informed and sensitive than everybody else. Who does that sound like a perfect description of from this whole saga of the last two years? Doesn't that sound quite a bit like James Comey? Doesn't it sound quite a bit like Bob Mueller, Brennan at the CIA, Clapper at the DNI, Yates at the DOJ? Doesn't that describe their mentality? Haven't we seen this on full display? They just thought they knew better. And that justified whatever it is that they did then. And they think it still justifies what they have done, even looking back at it now. Barr understands this. The current attorney general knows who we're dealing with uh, when you talk about the establishmentarians. He knows this mentality that, in a sense, in order to save our democracy, they had to undermine it. That's what they were willing to do. That was the gamble that they took. That was the position that they, they put themselves in. And... Barr recognizes this as a very real threat, as a very serious problem, one that we have to get to the bottom of. The same people who were screaming for two years about how we must know the full extent of Russian interference in the election, shouldn't we know the full extent of the federal bureaucracy's interference in our own election? Shouldn't we know if law enforcement powers were abused to try to turn a presidential election? Shouldn't we get to the bottom of it at least? Even for those people who don't believe that that happened, shouldn't they want that to be verified? Why the change all of a sudden? Why the move away from transparency and accountability to something else? To a position of indifference to abuse that seems all but certain to have occurred. I mean, I, I am certain it occurred. Well, once we start to have a discussion at the national level about the motives that were involved here, once you have people of Barr's stature who will make the case that, you know, it's not that they thought that they were being little Hillary stooges in this process. They really believed they had convinced themselves, they being the deep state operatives here, the, the Comeys and the McCabes and the Yates and the Brennans, and they really thought that what they were doing was the stuff of, of great patriots who would be forever remembered fondly by their countrymen. I mean, I, I think that they had convinced themselves of that. They were wrong. They're delusional. But 
did they believe it? Do you think do you think Comey thinks for one second that anything that he has done is really questionable and maybe makes him even a bad guy? Of course not. Comey looks down on all of us literally and figuratively because he is like seven foot four. But he does look down on the rest of the people while thinking simultaneously that he defends the rest of the people with his actions. The abuses that he and others engaged in, and we know there were abuses, releasing memos from your time as FBI director to the New York Times, that's an abuse. All right, There's no way around it. McCabe lying three times to the inspector general about contacts with the media, that's an abuse. There's no way around this. We will find out the full extent of it, I hope, from this Inspector General report. We will find out if there was a praetorianism on display here um, or a praetorian effect. Praetorianism is a pretty specific thing, but a praetorian effect where, well, here, here, here's how the Attorney General, I think, rather astutely and elegantly put it himself. Play 13. When we talk about... Uh foreign interference versus a say a, a government abuse of power mm-hmm. in the US which is more troubling well they're both they're both troubling um, equally in, in my mind they are sure I mean republics have fallen because of Praetorian Guard mentality where government officials uh, get very arrogant they identify uh, the national interest with their own political preferences and they feel that anyone who uh, you know has a different opinion? Uh, you know, is somehow uh, an enemy of the state, and uh, you know there is that tendency that they know better, uh, and uh, you know that they're there to protect as guardians uh, of the people. That can easily translate into essentially uh, supervening the will of the majority and getting your own way as a, as a government official. Does anyone at this point really even dispute that there were senior government officials under the Obama administration who believed that Trump was a clear and present danger to the United States? Isn't it quite obvious? I mean, some of them have come out and said as much since then. But I think it's obvious from the actions they took at the time. And you might say, well, Buck, how could they view it as such? Well, He's a threat to the very established structures and power dynamics that many of those individuals have relied upon and called upon and supported and defended their entire lives, certainly their whole careers. They don't want to see that dash. They they don't want it to be the, the case that you don't need to have ever held elected office to be the president. You know, some of these things we take for granted now, but at the time it was unthinkable to not just libs, but a lot of center-right Republican types, you know, GOP establishmentarians. It was uh, the case with a lot of them that they thought that Trump would just be pulling down the very fabric of American society by being president, that he would would tear us apart, that there'd be, that the stock markets would crash and there'd be race riots in the streets and there'd be, you know, a war with, well, not Russia, because, of course, we're Russia's puppet, right? But a war with North Korea and a trade war with China and all there'd be all these things that would happen that would result in the most ne- the most catastrophic consequences. None of that has happened. That country's doing really well, which is the single biggest slap in the face that these deep staters could ever have. So that's why they turn to 
the ad hominem. That's why then it, it's all, well, if we can't win just by trashing Trump, maybe we trash Barr and the American people won't believe what he has to say. Play 14. Our bipartisan committee, the last bipartisan effort on the Hill looking at this issue, reaffirmed unanimously that the Russians massively intervened. If we had not acted, if our intelligence community and law enforcement had not acted, they would have been irresponsible. And candidly, Mr. Barr has very little credibility with me, and I think the vast majority of, candidly, not just Democrats, but many Americans, because he time and again is not acting as our attorney general, but as a personal advocate for Donald Trump. It's a smear. It's a lie. It's a stupid one from Mark Warner, but I guess he has no nowhere else to run with it. Yeah, he has no he has no credibility. Mark Warner says here's somebody who seems to think Bill Barr has credibility. Play 15. I like and respect Bill Barr. I know he's an institutionalist who cares deeply about the integrity of the Justice Department. So I'm sure he'll use the standard career resources he has to judge what he should be involved in and what he shouldn't be involved in. But Bill Barr is a is a talented person who was a good attorney general the first time. I liked him very much then. I think he'll serve the Justice Department well. Wait, I thought Bill Barr had no credibility. There's James Comey talking about how talented and good and respectable and everything else he is. Oh, but because he didn't deliver Trump's impeachment on a silver platter to the Democrats like Mueller did, he's a bad guy now. Could this be any more obvious? I mean, I I do hope that you take a great degree. You listening to this across the country, I I hope you take great pride and, and solace in knowing that at least you're right and you're not one of the people that's been fooled. You haven't been hoodwinked. You haven't been deluded in this whole process. I think for so many liberals out there, they they can't admit to themselves what has really happened. They can't accept that in this whole process, they've been swindled intellectually. They've been made to look like fools. They've been turned into hysterics. So they'd much rather cling to the possibility that somehow, even with all the facts as they're out now, even seeing the actions of Mueller and knowing the truth of Comey and others, we're supposed to think that this was all fine. This was all on the up and up. I'm sorry, that's just not going to cut it. Not going to work. I'll get more on this and then also the possible breakup of Facebook. The FTC took a step in at least investigating Facebook for a possible trade violation. Very interesting stuff there. Um, And uh, we will get into the latest on Democrats freaking out over gun control. Yes, they do, in fact, want to take your guns. That's not just a thing that we tell each other. And if I have time, maybe even we'll get into some of the latest on China tariffs and Mexico uh, Mexico tariffs, too. A lot of tariffs flying around. We have a busy, busy show, my friends. Much to discuss. And is racism against anyone possible, or is racism only possible against certain groups, certain individuals? That's all coming up. Goals. Socialism is not the answer. I was re-elected. I was re-elected in a purple state in 2014, one of the worst years for Democrats in a quarter century. I was. We shouldn't try to achieve universal coverage by removing private insurance from over 150 million Americans. We should not try to tackle climate change by guaranteeing every American a government job. Hold on, hold on. 
<laughs> I love it. Oh, that's Hickenlooper running for Democrat president. And he's speaking in San Francisco. And he says socialism is not the answer. And they go, boo, boo, all over the place. Oh, because they think socialism is the answer. Boo, boo with your socialist, with your anti-socialism. Oh, man. I really do think that Donald Trump could just run that. I mean, that, that should be RNC ads going forward. This this is what happens when when a, a center-left Democrat, as he said, Hickenlooper's from a purple state. I mean, he's he, look, he's a Democrat, but he's just not among the far-left fringiest of Democrats. He says socialism is not the answer, and he, they just erupt into boo, boo. Now, what are we to make of this? When I talk about how socialism is on the rise in this country, a lot of my Democrat friends and colleagues will, of whom it feels there are fewer and fewer these days, uh, will say to me, um, but that's not true. And I would point out, well, you have Bernie Sanders running as a Democratic socialist, and he's number two out of 23 candidates of the Democratic Party right now. And you also have incidents like this. You know, that, that we can't entirely ignore you have an entire auditorium full of people in San Francisco in a liberal stronghold and socialism comes up and they're clearly very favorable to it. Never mind Green New Deal and single payer. There is a far not just a far left fringe. There is a far left control center of the Democratic Party. Now, the far left is calling the shots for them. And whether the rest of the Democratic Party goes along with all of it as a function of doctrine doesn't really matter because this is what the democratic party stands for now this is that the party principles are increasingly socialist increasingly far left i mean the green new deal is socialism it's just they don't call it that but it, it is a socialist program and the stuff they're talking about would come you could look at the soviet constitution some of it looks like it's borrowed liberally from that so there you have it all right team i, I i've got uh, a little more a little more on the bar Mueller throwdown stuff, and then we got to talk the NRA, guns, Democrats. Oh my, so much more. Stay with me. I got questions for him. When did you know there was no conspiracy between the Trump campaign and Russia? We knew when we deposed Jim Comey. When we deposed Jim Comey, he said all the way up until the day he was fired, May 9th, 2017, he told us they had no evidence of any type of conspiracy, collusion, or coordination between the Trump campaign and Russia. And that was after 10 months of the FBI investigating him. That, that, was, after, that was after putting Azra Turk next to George Papadopoulos. That was after using the dossier to spy on the Trump campaign via Carter Page. So after 10 months, if they couldn't establish collusion, how long did it take Bob Mueller? And if you learned this early on, why did you wait almost two years before you told the country that there was no conspiracy between the Trump campaign and Russia to influence the election? After all, that was your central focus, your central task of this entire special counsel investigation. So, that, so that's a question I think the whole country has for Bob Mueller. He didn't. I got a lot of questions for Bob Mueller. I would like to see them answered under oath in a public setting on Capitol Hill. Why should Mueller get away without his time in the hot seat. This is ridiculous. This is ridiculous, but it shows us that all along the the claims of letting the process play out and transparency and, you know, this, this is how, you know, d Democrats are, are are really like, I don't know how many of you have ever been to a, in some countries there'll be a tennis match and you're not supposed to make noise during a tennis match, you know, when the point is being played. But in some places they'll make a lot of noise. And imagine 
you know, one side, every time the player they don't like is about to hit the ball, they all yell, ah, and they make a lot of noise. But then when the player they do like is about to hit the ball, they're totally silent. And then when the other side that's rooting for the guy that's had the noise says, well, we're going to make noise too. They say, no, how, how dare you? Be, show respect. Be respectful. They only want respect when it goes their way. They only want the process to play out when it hurts Trump. The moment that it, that it doesn't hurt Trump or whatever, then, then the process is, is irrelevant to them. Or the moment the process will help Trump, they want to disregard it right away. What they know in the meantime is that they thoroughly, thoroughly uh, do not want to get answers from Bob Mueller in front of the American public. Because it's pretty, there's some questions that, that would immediately come up. Immediately come up. And what could the answers possibly be? Why is it, Mueller, that you held that very weird press conference? was completely unnecessary unless you were trying to just give a shove to the Democrats in Congress to impeach the president. I mean, no, no fair-minded, serious person can look at what Bob Mueller has done and come away from it thinking, oh, yeah, this guy didn't have an axe to grind against the president. He's fine. There's no, there's no problem here. Of course he did. A two-year-long investigation for uh, laying out, essentially laying out obstruction the whole Russia interference thing, that could have been done by the DOJ. There was no need for a special counsel on that. The only reason, and remember, they all, you don't remember, they hope that no one pays attention. The only reason for a special counsel was the inability of the DOJ working for President Trump to be trusted, according to some people in the DOJ who are Obama appointees, because of the possibility of Russia and the president working together. If it were just Russian interference in the election, you could have had a DOJ investigation of that, no problem. Still brought the same charges that Mueller brought against those Russian troll farms that are just really just showboating, don't, don't do anything, have no real effective force. Um, but no, they spent all this time putting together 11 cases of possible obstruction that when you read them, you see that there's only one where you could even make a, a vague and, and tortured and stretched case of, of even really, never mind obstruction, even impropriety. The other ones are ridiculous, ridiculous. And yet Mueller put them in there. But they're going to be running overtime, my friends, to try to prevent this from getting out. It's we're here. We are in June, and you've got some people that are very concerned about just what is going to be found out in this whole process. Here's former Attorney General Michael Mukasey on exactly what is at work here when it comes to the anti-Bar, anti-Bill Barr narrative out there. Play 21. There are a lot of nervous people in Washington. When he decided that he was going to investigate how this all got started, um, I think a lot of people got very nervous. I'll tell you that with the Mueller report, the first line says that they opened the file in 2016 after Papadopoulos had this conversation in a bar. That's not what started the investigation. He's saying the first line of the Mueller report is, is a lie. It's a former attorney general. He's a very smart guy. It is a lie. Of course it is. Think about what the claim is here. I mean, that, that you have so-called legal experts and former senior Obama administration officials who go on TV and parrot this stuff, Papadopoulos allegedly and disputedly, 
claims that he heard something from some guy who allegedly and disputedly said something about, you know, Russia getting emails from Hillary or whatever. And they opened up a, a, a full FBI field investigation based on that. I mean, to think that that's reasonable and rational, you'd have to say, Buck, did you every time you got a an anonymous tip uh, when you were at the NYPD about how bin Laden was hiding under was hiding under someone's bed, you know, in, in Queens, why didn't you investigate that right away? Why didn't you put all your best guys on it? Well, because you'd think there's some degree of verification and some professionalism in, in the approach of people that have these kinds of powers. But if you thought that about the FBI under the Obama administration with the Trump campaign in full swing, you'd be wrong. This is what we are told. This is what happens. This is the reality that we're all facing. We have uh, to talk about uh, how Dems hate the NRA, how libs hate gun owners. That's coming up. If I can. I'm the only candidate calling for a ban and buyback on every single assault weapon. But I also believe that's investing in jobs and education block by block. If I can, because, of course, you mentioned... You mentioned your plan for a mandatory buyback uh, of assault weapons, weapons of war, as you call them. Uh, You told my colleague Jake Tapper that you'd be willing to support criminal prosecution of people who don't follow if that that requirement, if it were to become law. So so under President Swalwell, you are saying that some Americans would indeed have to give up their guns. Yeah, and I'm proposing something that Australia did, you know, in the 90s. Eric Swalwell, he's a zero percenter, meaning he's not yet at one percent support, I believe. He's in the zero percentile. Uh, Eric Swalwell there is, is letting it be known that he do, he wants to take your guns. Let's let's not let's not get this confused. Let's not get this twisted. He wants to take your guns. He believes the guns should be taken from your home. He talks about Australia's mandatory buyback program. Okay, how many times do we have to go over this? Australia's buyback program involved the grand total of a few million firearms in a much smaller country, and in fact. There was less. Uh, there are more firearms in private hands today than at the height of the buyback, or the moment right after the buyback program essentially wound down. Although it kind of went on for many years, um, because the buyback program didn't do anything, because criminals don't care about the buyback program, and it's not a successful way of, or not a, not an effective way of trying to reduce gun crime. But, but if we were really serious about, about reducing gun crime, wouldn't we instead of Eric Swalwell? talking to us about how semi-automatic rifles, which is what he's discussing, and calls them weapons of war, which, you know, a a bolt action, those of you who actually have some familiarity with firearms, which I know is a large, large percentage of this audience, you know, a a bolt action rifle can be a weapon of war. There are are marine snipers that still use a bolt action rifle. Weapons of war is a nonsense term. What does it even mean? Is a sidearm, is a 9mm or a forty-five caliber handgun a weapon of war? Of course it is. How many people, you know, in, in war zones? I've carried a sidearm in a war zone. I, I'm pretty darn sure it's a weapon of war if I needed to. I would have shot somebody with it in a war zone. It's a weapon of war. So why do they use that term? Well, because they're trying to stigmatize Second Amendment supporters and, and Second Amendment uh, or, or, or gun owners across the board. And that's really what this is about. And I, I want to, you know, while there's a part of it that wants to talk about the, the specifics of this ban or that ban and how it doesn't really it uh, doesn't really matter. Uh, they they do this, meaning Democrats, they push this stuff. They, they stigmatize gun owners because they want to show their base that they don't like those people. Uh, if it were about 
dealing with gun violence, don't you think you'd hear from these Democrats a lot more, people like Swalwell and and Gillibrand, about how 50 people were shot in Chicago over the weekend. 50 people in in just a couple of parts of Chicago. 5-0. That's a lot. 10 of them were killed. 50 shot. It's a lot. And, And Chicago is one of the most restrictive jurisdictions in the country for guns. And then they say, oh, but fuck, that's because of neighboring jurisdictions. All right, well, neighboring jurisdictions don't have a, oh, you can bring your gun into Chicago loophole. It's still illegal to have your gun in Chicago. So why will passing more gun laws do anything about the neighboring jurisdiction problem? No, what it means is that you'll have someone who's a you know legal concealed carry permit holder who dr- drives into the wrong. I'm sorry, producer Mike tells me it's actually 52 were shot in Chicago over the weekend. Thanks, Mike. My gosh. 52, one city. Why can't they more effectively deal with that violence? That is another question that I, I, never, get a, I never get a worthwhile answer to. I ask people about gun violence in Chicago, and I've had this conversation with Democrats, and they immediately turn to police violence. No, 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 no. It's not the police that shot 52 people. It's, that, that, that's not, it's not a police violence problem. I'm sorry. You don't get to. But they don't want to talk about what's causing violence in Chicago because that's not a fun talking point for Democrats. They want their base, they want the left to know that they don't like gun owners, that gun owners are bad people, they're mean people, they are uh, you know, foolish, simple-minded, xenophobic, racist. A lot of them live in the Bible Belt and in the South. Right? That's what they think of gun owners. Or they live in you know, Texas, <gasps> places like that. That's what they think of gun owners. And this is why you have someone like Kirsten Gillibrand who is really the, she's trying to be the panderer in chief. I mean, this, she'll say anything. I mean, I wish I could sit in on the Gillibrand consultant meetings that happen, I'm sure, every day where they say, you know, here's your messaging for today. And she just goes, "Okay, I will say that it's like they're programming some kind of a brainless Democrat robot. Whatever needs to be said, I will say does not matter what I used to say. Here she is really trying to outdo the competition, the the crazy left wing competition on guns. And you can hear for yourself. Play nine. And I think the most outrageous thing that's happened to our democracy is how much fear and division and hate has been spread. I think the NRA is the worst organization in this country for doing exactly that. They care more about their profits than the American people. They care more about selling guns to someone on the terror watch list or someone with grave mental illness or someone uh, who has a violent criminal background. All lies. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know if she's so stupid that she does not realize that these are lies or if she's so uh, reckless. She just does not care. It, it is it is a tough call. It is not something that I could easily tell you one way or the other. I mean, there, there's a case you made that maybe she is such an airhead that she doesn't know what she's saying isn't true, that that the NRA absolutely does not does not advocate for selling weapons to people that are gravely mentally ill. It is already illegal to sell a fire. And the NRA does not try to change any laws where a violent criminal uh, could, or where it bans a violent criminal from buying a firearm. But the facts are not something that Kristen, uh, Kirsten, <laughs> see, Kristen, Kirsten, Kirsten Gillibrand troubles herself much with. Remember, this is the woman, folks, uh, who, one of the women, I should say, who wants to be the next president of the United States. That's right. We're supposed to feel like we'll sleep better at night if we replace Trump with her. Why exactly? She's what what do you get? What's the improvement? 
with Jalal if you just want classic left-wing, non-thinking, brainless talking points, uh, but you want the progressive policy apparatus behind it, then I guess, yeah, Gillibrand's fine. He just checks the identity politics box by being a woman. That's all they really care about right now, I guess. Finding somebody they can shoehorn into the uh, the White House who gives them some claim to Democrats, some claim to diversity. Uh, at least that's what the left wants. I, you know, they're still clinging to Bernie and and Biden at the top of the at the top of the polls right now. So who knows? But here's what Gillibrand said about the bump stock ban. Play ten. Is there anything you could have done that would have stopped this terrible incident? Yeah, stop being beholden to the NRA like President Trump is. He does President Trump's bidding. Remember, after the shooting in Las Vegas, he said, yeah, yeah, we're going to ban the bump stocks. Did he ban the bump stocks? No, because the NRA came crashing down. Um, she's wrong. They did ban bump stocks. They're now illegal to own, buy, or sell. President Trump took that action and issued the ban, gave them 90 days to turn them in, or, or bump stocks, as some of you know, it's, it's really just a, uh, a thing that allows you to engage in a type of, uh, a method of firing a weapon. But does that, do you think that the, the fact checkers, the Washington Post, are running around with their hair on fire? I mean, maybe they put it on some back page somewhere, but, oh my gosh, Gillibrand lied about Trump and bump, no, of course not. Because it's a, when Gillibrand lies, you see it's a good lie. This is the way the media breaks this stuff down. This is how the Democrats view it. There are good lies and bad lies. When Trump lies, bad. And it's not even necessarily a lie. When Trump says that he's the handsomest, they call him a liar. I, I don't know if you think Trump is the handsomest man in the world or not, but the president's allowed to think that and say that without everyone jumping down his, you know, jumping on his uh, chest, yelling about how he's a liar. He's not a liar. He may be, may have a little bit of a high self-regard. Perhaps a little narcissistic, but he's not a liar. Uh, Gillibrand is a liar, saying things about the NRA that aren't true. The worst organization in America, though. Uh, is, isn't that remarkable? You know, I've, I'm somebody who's paid NRA dues. Really, I'm I'm the worst. I'm I'm supporting the worst organization in America with my dollars. It's it's a remarkable thing for them to say. But this is the, this is Democrats. All the stuff about guns, and this is why I, I'm so. Uh, I just have no patience for these stupid Democrats on this issue. It's really not about gun violence. That's not the, that they, they say that is their concern. That is not true. It is not about gun violence. The real concern, the primary concern is showing the, the left and the base of the left that they dislike gun owners. It is antipathy for you who listen to this show, who own firearms. They want all their little voters in you know, the uh, most blue cities in the country to know gun owners are bad people and we don't like them. And the NRA is the worst organization in the country because that gets donations going. It gets media coverage from foolish libs who work for all these different news organizations who don't know anything about firearms, who don't know anything about guns. Uh, they just know guns bad and gun owners bad, too. Remember that. Don't let them try to create this artificial separation, because as far as they're concerned, there is no separation. Guns and gun owners Leftists hate them both, my friends, unfortunately, but that's the reality. Let's kick this one off with a Trump tweet, shall we? I believe that if people stop using or subscribing to AT&T, they'd be forced to make big changes at CNN, which is dying in the ratings anyway. It is so unfair, such bad fake news. Why wouldn't they act when the world watches CNN? It gets a false picture of the USA. Sad. He is absolutely right about CNN. 
And I like that he goes after them here and just says what needs to be said. CNN is is American anti-American propaganda. And it's time that finally we, we are open to the discussion about what that what that should mean for them going forward. I mean, I, you know, I, I like the Trump let lets it rip on this stuff. And uh, I just I'll note that after my time in China, where I was seeing so much of the anti-Americanness on CNN International, uh, Trump pushing back on this and saying that people should put pressure on AT&T. You know, this is where you have the conservatives who jump out and say, oh, no, 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 we, we don't do that. We don't do that. And to that, I say, well, what do we do? Suffer in silence. Why is it that corporate culture has been in my in my adult lifetime effectively taken over by the left? Why does Disney feel so fine with saying that they're going to punish the entire state of Georgia for a completely legitimate legislative act of the Georgia State Assembly? Why do they think that that's okay? Meaning that they won't even have any pushback, meaningful pushback from it. Why do we why do we know that uh, cities or different localities discriminating against Chick-fil-A because it is a, a company that tries to promote Christian values. Why do we know that, that, that they feel very safe? They feel very safe doing these things. That they can hound people out of their jobs. They can get them fired. They can ruin them because they don't support leftist orthodoxy or because they run afoul of, in some way, leftist orthodoxy. Do we just allow this to continue? I, you know, this, this brings me into something of the discussion over wartime versus peacetime conservatism that has broken out recently. I don't know how much of how many of you have been. This is kind of deep in the weeds, blue check journo stuff. But apparently the uh, the peacetime conservatives are coming for me. You hear the sirens in the background. Uh, but no, this is this is something that has blown out in the open the last week or so as a function of the debate between David French, somebody who you know well, who listened to the show from when he used to appear pretty regularly. He is a, a senior writer at National Review. And Sarab Amari, who you also know. I mean, these are two guys I've had on the show a lot. Sarab is a writer at Commentary and recently put a book out. And I, I cannot do justice to both of their individual conservative political philosophies and i have invited sarab on i'm going to invite david on and i want them to speak for themselves but the issue boils down at some level to you know do you sometimes have to just roll up the sleeves and win you know do you have to be willing to use the state to achieve conservative ends instead of just the taking this hands-off attitude of well if we create an even playing field then conservative ideas will win out when the other side keeps winning victories using the mechanisms of the state and not only do they win, but then they run around and, and bayonet the survivors. I mean, that, then they run around and and really ram it into our faces. You know, oh, not not only do we need laws that say that, you know, a man can compete in women's athletics. But if you have a problem with that, you're violating that individual's civil rights. And, you, you know, you should be prosecuted. You know, it's not enough to get their way. They want to get their way and crush those who dissent. What's the best way to deal with it? The, the Frenchian way, although I know, I'm sure David would would quibble with this, disagree with this, is to use the processes that are in place, take it to court, you know, fight it out and uh, try to make the case, try to persuade the other side, try to use the the more Sarab Amari way is well, how do we how do we smash the argument of the other side 
take power, uh, take the power of the state into our own hands for limited purposes and achieve conservative ends, achieve conservative policy solutions. Uh, you know, it's, it's really the more the more Trumpian approach. And I, I think it's, it's a fascinating debate. I think there's very interesting dynamics on both sides. And I do believe it also revisits that schism that we all saw from when during the and, and look, I was you know this who listen to the show. I was initially a, a Ted Cruz supporter and, and I, I was skeptical of Trump. I was never anti Trump, but I was skeptical in the early days. And then I realized over time, oh, wait, this is something this is different. This is a a movement and this is a sea change. This is a separation from the politics of the past. This needs to be taken very, very seriously. Not every word that Trump breathes need to be taken seriously, right? We learn this. Don't take Trump literally, but take him seriously. Um, but that that debate within conservatism and and the kind of Romney-esque losing like a gentleman, that is something that is going to repeat itself now, I think, heading into the general election. And we, we see it with things like how to respond to the very aggressive comments of Disney, one of the most powerful and iconic American companies in the world, clearly saying that, you know, if you're pro-life, we don't like you. That's what Disney, you know, this is up there with Coca-Cola. I mean, this is up there with the most iconic American brands. You know, this would be like Ralph Lauren saying, and I don't even want to know what Ralph Lauren thinks on a corporate level, but Ralph Lauren saying, you know, if you're pro-life, you're not welcome in our stores. You're not welcome to shop with us if you're pro-life. I'm sure that there are plenty of people at the very top of corporate America who feel that way about about those who are pro-life. And you'll note that the the uh, converse is the obverse, the converse, the contrary position is almost never articulated. I mean, I can't think of one off the top of my head where a major corporate official in America says that if you are a conservative, you are not welcome, you are not you know, part of our family. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, if you, if you are a liberal, pardon me, if you're a liberal, you are not welcome. You're not part of our family. You're not somebody that can uh, be involved in what we're doing. I, I can't think of that being the case. So how do we respond to that? I mean, Trump saying that AT&T should be pressured because of CNN. Uh, how badly for CNN am I supposed to feel when I know that CNN anchors will individually reach out and use the power of their organization behind the scenes to try to uh, crush conservative voices. I, I know about this personally. Uh, CNN on a corporate level will exert its influence and its power to try and uh, crush not just any competitors that it can, but obviously to stifle and, uh, and ostracize conservative voices. You know, it's a lib propaganda outlet. That's what it is. So shouldn't we be willing to take our dollars elsewhere and, and show, you know, this is really a conversation about should conservatives start to boycott too, folks? Do we need to fight fire with fire? I've been around for a long time now in this game. Well, not that long compared to others, but I've been around for a while. And us making the Burkean, Hayekian, let's just level the market and let's just let things play out while we make our good arguments. You know, we're making that argument sometimes while they're stomping our face into the curb. I'm not sure that this really has the intended effect. And I do think that that is the recognition of the Trump era, that we've been getting crushed on the government uh, by the government when it comes to social issues for a long time. You know, we, we have now on this on this uh, the fight over over gender and gender binarity. I don't know if that's a word, but the gender binary construct, male, female, 
you know, they're not just making a, a social argument. They're leveraging the power of the state so that your kids now are going to be learning, you know, in the fifth grade in California that if, if they're if they feel like a woman one day, they're actually a woman. And this is going to be this stuff is going to get mandated. This stuff is going to be jammed down your throats. Is, is the response to that to ask them to get a, a subscription to, you know, the weekly standard RIP? Uh, you know, what, what are you supposed to do? Are we are we to take action in response to the aggression of the left or not? And I mean, action on a corporate level, financial action. Look, there's there's a degree of this. The, the, the conservative versus liberal corporate sphere right now reminds me a little bit of the way that the U.S. and China trade has gone. You know, on U.S.-China trade, we're, we're told we, we want to be free traders. Free trade creates wealth. Free trade creates, uh, free trade creates prosperity. And, you know, we need to really focus in on this stuff. And to that I say, okay, but... China is not a free trade country with us. China has all kinds of tariffs, and there are other ways too that they uh, they stack the deck in favor of their state-owned or state-supported enterprises, and they are getting a free ride on our products through intellectual property uh, theft. And you know, there's all kinds of bad stuff. So we can sit here and just stamp our feet and say, no, 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 we're not going to do anything in response because we're free traders. There, there's a little bit of that with corporate America and. The liberal dominance, uh, the dominance of liberal narratives in the in the C-suite across the country. We, we don't we don't want to be punitive and nasty to people because they're liberals. But can we at least penalize corporations that are going to take these this kind of a line? Uh, are, are we going to push back or just keep getting slapped around? I mean, there is a there's a little bit of a of a of a conservative, uh, you know, over tolerance of, well, if we just, you know, if we just engage in, you know, peaceful resistance, if, if we go the Gandhi, the Gandhi routine, you know, eventually the other side will see the light if we do peaceful resistance and make our case. And to that, I say, well, you know, not if you're dealing, I was going to go with this, but you know, not if you're dealing with the Nazis is not going to make the case for you. You know, we got to remind ourselves a little bit of Bonhoeffer here. You know, there comes a time when, and I know we're going down the Nazi path. I'm not saying that we're dealing with Nazis, but just there are there are times when you realize that you got to change up your tactics because the other side is just going to cheat and they're just going to keep winning. They're just going to keep winning. So Trump's tweet here, I know it got a lot of attention about uh, stopping subscription to AT&T in order to bring it, bring about change at CNN. I mean, you know, Jeff, Jeff Zucker at CNN should go. CNN has become to anyone paying attention who's honest a laughingstock. It's not a news organization anymore. It is a it is a straight up propaganda channel. They say all kinds of terrible things about Fox News all the, uh, on their air. And yet they get all all huffy when, you know, in, in response, the president says, well, look at you guys. You're you're the opposite of state TV. You're, you're something else. You're anti state TV. You're anti Trump TV. I, I do want us to fight back. I do think it's not enough to sit to sit around and, and hope that the market will the, the market as it stands now. Right. Not not a free market that is fair and open. The market as it stands now, which has all kinds of inefficiencies and bureaucracies and biases built into it. I do think that's a problem. Uh, speaking of how we fight back and the not fair free market of ideas, social media. I got some thoughts on this one that a lot of a lot of attention being paid to the fact that you have uh, the uh, FTC, 
Federal Trade Commission going to be looking at Facebook, everybody. This could be a big thing, a big deal, big situation. I have important thoughts on this. And also we'll be joined by my friend Will Chamberlain from Human Events to discuss more coming up. The Federal Trade Commission, which would be leading any antitrust action into Facebook, uh, they now have... They now have uh, gotten this thing started, folks. They're going to lead any antitrust investigation to Facebook. They, this is the early stage of what could be the breakup of the social media giant. Now, will it be broken up? Who knows? We have to see how this shakes out. I'm sure Facebook will fight very hard to prevent that. But this is an issue that everyone has to, if you care about politics in America, if you care about culture and, and American society, the future of this country, you are forced to care at some level about these social media giants, even if you don't, and I know some of you who listen don't, have a Facebook account, have a Twitter account, have an Instagram account. This stuff affects all that's going on around you. It, 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 affects, the, uh, it affects elections. It affects uh, our discourse, how we discuss issues, what we learn, what we know, how we communicate, and the amount of power that is concentrated in the hands of just Facebook is pretty staggering. Uh, there is nothing in the in the history of humanity that can really rival Facebook's ability to censor, uh, magnify, disrupt, deflect conversation, information flow. It, it is incredible. Uh, incredible in the sense that it's hard to believe. Uh, it's not incredible as an in awesome. Uh, so. What Facebook has offered so far is, well, we're going we're gonna to come up with some kind of a internal rules and commissions. We want rules the road because they've been playing this game where they're both platform and publisher. So they, they don't want to be held responsible for what is on their platform because it's obviously content generated by users. And you don't know what crazy people and all kinds of people are going to put on there. Uh, but they so they, they don't want to be responsible for that. But they also want the ability to censor what some people do. And, and establish these terms of service. So they, to me, it seems like they really want to have it both ways. Uh, and yet this is a company that is worth over $500 billion and by some estimates has about three quarters of all social networking revenue. I mean, it is a true giant. And, you know, we're talking about Trump before and how he wants pressure on AT&T. Well, the Justice Department precedent that most people will point to for a breakup, a possible breakup of Facebook, is that of AT&T back in the 1950s, right? AT&T, many of us now think of as a cell phone, uh, cell phone company provider, right? They give you your cell service or your phone service, but they used to be old landline phones, as you know, and they provided uh, all kinds of telecommunications equipment. The government sued... AT&T under antitrust and then there was a there was a whole um, you know there was a consent came out of it and AT&T had to put out its its patents and also wasn't allowed to just jump into and try to control the the computer industry you look at so that was then and now you know AT&T is still around today still a very large company and I believe the stock did well after the uh, initial break. But if there is any case to be made ever that somebody is too powerful, a guy like Mark Zuckerberg, who has 60% of the voting shares of Facebook, and Facebook owns Instagram and WhatsApp, billions of users, and 
can determine you know what the algorithms do what news people see what the privacy settings are uh you know what is protected speech what is what is beyond the protection uh first amendment protection or rather facebook's first amendment protection who knows what that even is there's some really problematic stuff going on here and we can hope that somebody else is going to come along with another platform and and we'll be able to compete with facebook as it stands now but facebook acquires other platforms copies uh, aspects of their tech and then just runs them out of business. So what does it mean in the meantime? You know, what is it? Uh, Keynes who said in the long run, we're all dead. Yeah, maybe there'll be a Facebook competitor in 50 years, but Facebook right now could pretty much if it wanted to turn the next election. Do you want one company to have that kind of power, especially a Silicon Valley left wing company? They're regulating all of our companies. There's all kinds of regulation in place that we deal with our companies not even our companies, just American companies deal with day in and day out. Should Facebook be immune from all that for some reason? Why? We've got my friend Will Chamberlain joining us to talk more. Stay with me. So is there a conservative case for breaking up some of these mega social media corporations out there? Facebook, top of the list, but Google also right there, too. Some people are pointing at Amazon. Let's talk to our friend Will Chamberlain about this. He's the publisher of Human Events, which has been revived and is making all kinds of waves on the interwebs, telling people good things about conservatism. Mr. Will, great to have you back. Good to be with you, Buck, as always. All right, man. So what's the what's the uh, the move that should be made here about Facebook? Well, what is the conservative case? Because, you know, usually, as you know, you'll hear from most mainstream mainline conservatives. Makes it sound like they all wear monocles and ascots, but you know what I mean. You'll hear from the, the conservative establishment that there's no such thing as a monopoly. A monopoly is only possible if the government allows it to be, or rather in, enforces a monopoly. And so social media cannot be a monopoly. You say what, sir? I mean, let's deal with that first as a matter of economics. I think these companies are very clearly monopolies. You know, Facebook has a market cap of something like $500 billion. Google closer uh, to a trillion uh, those are the market caps that are not a product of people who think that these companies are in a competitive market and are facing serious competition that will reduce their profits. These are you, you get a market cap like that because you've got a monopoly and can can essentially control pricing. Um, and, and that's why not, not only do you have these massive market caps, but nobody in their right mind thinks about competing with Google or Facebook. Like if you try to go to a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley, even somebody who subscribes to the idea that competition here was the way to go. And you said, I'm going to compete with Google. This is, I'm going to set up a new company. We're going to beat them in search. They'd laugh you out of the room. Same thing with Facebook. Uh, yeah. And, and there's a lot of ways they go about this, right? They buy, they buy people out. They crush people. They copy people. I mean, they, the, the idea that anyone could cop, uh, could uh, compete with them does seem to be, but you know, but they would point Will, and by the way, I mean, I, I've already made my case here on the show. I, I do think that there should be, regulation of this or rather there should be a, a breakup of this for a, a whole bunch of different reasons but the other side would say well what about uh, you know friendster and what about uh, what's what's the other one called myspace and you know they could make a comeback right i mean the problem is there are network effects here like you know myspace never had a dominant monopoly in the way facebook does now and once you have a network like this where everyone is uh there's no reason for people to leave and moreover, the advantages you get in terms of the data collection you have and the information you have on your users, they just create this massive competitive moat that's almost impossible to surmount. Uh, and, I, and I think the unique dynamic of the, win the unique winner-take-all dynamic that is really prevalent in tech 
makes it so that these anti-monopoly arguments just aren't very good. So why should conservatives care about this? Well, because it's not that these companies are using monopoly power to price gouge so much. That's the, the normal lefty case about regulating monopolies. This is a new problem. Instead of price gouging, these companies are using their massive power to sway politics. Uh, and because they're not in a competitive environment, you can't just set up a competitor to outcompete them when they're doing things that hurt their bottom line for political ends. So the ability of like, a company like Facebook to tweak its algorithm to disfavor conservative candidates or uh, a Google to demonetize conservative YouTube creators so that uh, conservative commentators are discouraged from making videos. You know, all these things add up to essentially changing the landscape, the battlefield uh, where where politics is where politics is resolved. And so unless conservatives are willing to use government power to remedy that, uh, to impose punishments on these companies when they decide to censor conservatives, then we're going to be at a structural disadvantage in elections. And I don't see a reason why the conservative movement should tolerate that. I also always wonder how the because, you know, we, we get uh, on, on our side, there are a lot of conservatives who, who oppose the, 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 this. And this reminds me a bit of of the debate over tariffs where they'll just say, you know, free trade and tariffs are taxes. And the response to that now has become, well, hold on a second. Free trade sounds great. We don't we don't have free trade. That's not the, that's not the status quo. So to start from this position of, well, just our answer to everything is free trade is to ignore the reality of what is happening. This is specifically with China, but actually with the EU, with Canada, with a lot of places. Um, and I think there's a similar dynamic at work with uh, the, the Facebook monopoly breakup question because they, they don't seem to understand that Facebook operates as both a, as a publisher and as a platform, right? So sometimes it wants publisher protection. Sometimes it wants platform protection. And I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here talking to you on terrestrial radio. There are all kinds of regulations on what I can say. There are all kinds of limitations and, and issues and FCC and this and that and the other thing. So wh why should Facebook be exempt and write its own rules? Right. I mean, usually this, this argument about not using the government, people say it's a principle, but really it's just a heuristic. It's like, as a rule of thumb, we shouldn't use government to regulate things. But these people aren't objecting to things like civil rights laws that say to, you know, hotel owners and restaurant owners, you can't just turn away black people. Like, I don't think most of the people who talk about the virtues of the free market are going around thinking like, wow, we really need to get rid of these civil rights laws that are impinging on freedom of association. So for the same token, in 2019, to have meaningful free speech, you need to have Facebook and Twitter. You do. If you don't have those things, uh, it's just very difficult. You're downstream of communication. And it's very difficult to have any sort of impact. And so to protect the constitutional right uh, under the First Amendment of free speech, to make that meaningful, we need to think about platform access as a civil right. Now, why can't we see a breakthrough of, of some of the more uh, specialized platforms? You know, people have been saying this for a while. Why, why doesn't conservative Facebook work? I mean, conservative Facebook is just why would you move on to a different another platform when the point of Facebook is really friends and family communication? You know, th th that's where everybody already is. So it's just it's a it's a hassle to have one more app that isn't nearly as functional, that doesn't provide the same benefit that Facebook does, because you can't easily reach out to people you want to reach. So that's Facebook. Conservative Twitter has problems because the entire journalistic um, you know industry is on Twitter, along with almost every politician and most major public figures. So meaning most serious public square debate happens on Twitter. 
if you go onto your own little conservative Twitter website, like you create conservative alternative, then all you end up with is talking with a few people who've moved over there when the import, I guess the important or the really contested public discussion is happening on the platform you left. So it just, it doesn't really get anywhere. That's, that's what I mean by network effect. There's a winner take all dynamic and Facebook and Twitter have kind of won already. And what's your, what's your prescription for what should happen now? Right. So I, I think that it's a very good start to see that uh, President Trump is starting these antitrust investigations. I think that, you know, from his perspective, he should be looking at Facebook and Twitter as adversarial institutions and essentially using levers of power against them until they decide to start playing fair and not censoring conservatives. In terms of the ideal goal, the kind of law that I want to see in place, I want it to be the case that if you are wrongfully banned from social media, meaning you're banned for something that wasn't unlawful, then you should be able to walk into court and get your account back the very next day uh, and, and actually instantiate the idea that platform access is a civil right. And if a company takes that away from you without a really, really good reason, then the law should step in and force them to give you your account back. Sounds good to me. All right, everybody. Will Chamberlain over at Human Events. Go to humanevents.com to see what they are up to over there. The site has been doing great work. And, uh, Will, we appreciate your time, sir. Thank you so much, Buck. All right, team, we'll be right back. A nasty start to President Trump's trip to England. He called Meghan Markle nasty and then denied it, even though there was actually sound of him saying it. Nasty is a word Trump has used before to dismiss Hillary Clinton. President Trump called the American princess nasty. Meghan Markle referring to her as nasty. Nasty. Trump denied that on Twitter. But roll the tape. Calling a woman nasty is not news now, uh, especially when it comes to women of color. What did Trump do? Oh, good heavens. Oh, did he, did he step out of line with the, with the royal family? Did he say something that was untoward about Miss Meghan Markle? Oh, no, he called her nasty. That's what they're saying. Media was so upset. Meghan Markle. How could he? How could he, sir? Have you no decency, sir? Well, does the media have any accuracy? Let's put aside the decency question for a moment. Does the, does the media care if they're, if they're in fact, uh, representing a story accurately? Because you'll notice that you know, the, the line you take away, and I saw uh, fake Jake Tapper over at CNN spreading this over the weekend, among others. The line you'll take away from this is, well, he just called her nasty. And oh, because she's, they say, a, a, a woman of color, because she is half, uh, I believe, half African-American, that makes this sin even worse. Meanwhile... Trump calls everybody names. Trump calls, you know, white, black, Asian, Latino. I mean, Trump will swat at you on Twitter or with a soundbite no matter what, even if he used to be your friend sometimes. You know what I mean? You know, you mess with Trump at your peril. Trump is an equal opportunity Twitter stomper. All right, let's, let's just skip past the nonsense. It's very obvious. All right, Trump is equal opportunity about that stuff. We know this, all right? So... What did Trump really say, though? You know, I mean, this is really a, a case study of sorts in fake news. What did Trump say? Play clip six. Uh, Meghan, who's now the Duchess of Sussex. Sussex right. Uh, we've given her a different name. She can't make it because she's got maternity leave. Are you sorry not to see her? Because she wasn't so nice about you during the campaign. I don't know if you saw that. I don't. I didn't know that. No. Yeah. I didn't know that. No, I, I hope she's okay. Uh, I did not know that, no. She said she'd move to Canada if you got elected. Turned out she moved to Britain. Well, that would be good. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people moving here. 
So what can I say? No, I didn't know that she was nasty. Is it good having an American princess then, Mr. President? Is that well, I think sort of helped the links? I think it's nice. I think it's nice. And I'm sure she'll do uh, excellently. She'll be, uh, she'll be very good. She'll be very good. I hope she does. It is a misrepresentation of the context and of the, the spirit of what that exchange was to, to just pull out that he called her nasty. He was respond. I mean, he was pushed into this. They're saying this woman said something bad about you. And his response was to say in in full. Well, I didn't realize she said that not nice thing about me, but I think she'll be great in this role here in, in Britain. That's what he really said. Now, is it as a as a, a function of, of pure, um, you know, a, a pure one word quotation? Is it true to say that he he referred to Meghan Markle in with the word nasty? Well, you know, even that's a little bit of a stretch because he really was referring to what she had said as nasty. If you listen in context, which this matters, right? This is the I'm sure some of you with your husbands and wives or significant others. You know, there's a difference between you were being a jerk and you are a jerk, right? This is and this is a right. Producer Mike, this is an important distinction. Absolutely, man. Yeah. Yes. Right. Like, you know, I, I will freely admit that, like, sometimes I act like a jerk. I will also <laughs> tell people that I am not a jerk, though. Right. I mean, you know, this, these are different things. Yeah. Different context. This is where you're supposed to say, yeah, Buck, you're not a jerk. Oh, dude. Yeah. Thanks. We, that's, a, that's a given. You know that. Yeah, that's right. We love you, producer Mike. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Fishing for compliments here on the Buck Sexton show. But no, really, like th- th- there's a difference in, in context. There's a difference in how. It was portrayed, but they don't care. They just want to go with the uh, with the fake news. They just want to yeah. continue to right. I mean, Mike, I mean, when you saw yeah. this, they were running with this all weekend. Oh, trying, it was insane. It was trouble. insane. And actually, when you when you called me there, I was actually looking for there are several articles and several times previous to this where Markle has slammed the president. She has gone out of our way. This is, I think, to me, is another example of Trump counterpunching. She has blasted him in the past much as other people in the UK have. And this is just Trump turning around saying, eh, you know what, I don't know, she was nasty, whatever. It was totally mischaracterized, but she has taken the front first punch at him and nobody's talking about that. Yeah, and it's also just such a stupid, spoiled brat thing to say if somebody becomes president. Really, you're going to bail on your country that quickly? Someone becomes president you don't like? He's probably only going to last, I mean, according to Libs, four years in the role, right? You can't handle four years. There's such, this is the thing, Libs are such emotional babies. You see it over and over again. Such a bunch of babies. I had to sit here for eight years of Obama. All the, oh, he's brilliant. He's a genius. He's amazing. He's perfect. He's like a god. No, the guy's actually full of himself, pretty boring, doesn't have any good ideas, and you know, managed to play the system really well to get where he was. I, but I wasn't like, I'm going to leave America. You know, the, Conservatives don't threaten to leave America every time. I wasn't even going to leave America if, hello, Hillary became president. And that shows dedication. That's how much I love this place, so... Just telling people, man, you know, they gotta, the libs need to take a chill pill. You know, plenty of them take all kinds of pills. They should take chill pill. That would be a better way for them to uh, handle this stuff going forward. Did we also have the president, Mike, talking about just uh, how things are going to go with, uh, well, here, here's Nigel Farage in uh, saying uh, that the people in the UK are liking the Trumpster. Play 19. I mean, look, three years ago, I was almost the only person in Britain standing up fighting for Donald Trump and saying he was the right person. It was a very lonely place. What people have seen in this country are governments that get elected on promises and then break them. And in America, 
you've got a president who does what he said he was elected to do. The label on the tin is right, and he is earning credibility. His approval rating in Britain is now a third, but it was way less than that three years ago. So people are beginning to understand that he is the right guy. People are starting to get it in the UK, according to Nigel Farage. Uh, do the polls back that up? I, you know, I, I, I don't really know. But at least... Nigel's out there making the case for Trump. And Nigel's got that great, he's got that great British accent. It's very, like, inspiring. Like, oh, like, let's go take that, let's go take that hill, good sir. You know, he's very, uh, he's got that kind of upbeat Brit thing going on. Well, hello. Um, then you got Sadiq Khan, who, no surprise, is trashing the president of the United States. This is the mayor of London. I don't know how many of you even really care? This is the mayor of London. Uh, there's a reason I'm bringing this up, though. We'll have some fun with the Play 18. Some of the things Donald Trump has done over the last two, three years, Londoners find uh, abhorrent and uh, offensive, uh, rolling back the reproductive rights of uh, women, separating children from their parents on the Mexican border, introducing a ban on Muslim-majority countries, standing up and defending white supremacists, neo-Nazis and anti-Semites in Charlottesville, amplifying messages from racists in this uh, country, walking away from the Paris uh, Climate uh, Accord, and I could go on. And my frustration with our Prime Minister is she's not willing to say boo to a goose. That's, uh, so he's just trashing the president. And then the media tried to get all upset when Trump responded. Let me just give you Trump's response to the mayor of London. Khan reminds me very much of our very dumb and incompetent mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio, who has also done a terrible job, only Sadiq is half his height. In any event, I look forward to being a great friend of the United Kingdom, and I'm very much looking forward to my visit landing now. <sighs> you know, I look, I don't understand whether the president's supposed to just take it from the mayor of London. I don't think so. I think Trump is right. Swat back at this guy. You know, Sadiq Khan, if he wants to, you know, if you're going to come at the Trump, you better be ready for the counterpunch, my friend. And Trump, Trump throws him with the best of them. Uh, it is just a disgrace what happens um, to people based on their sexual orientation, particularly around the globe, um, including countries where, by the way, a lot of media companies film their movies. Um, so those who are talking about pulling out of Georgia now, they happen to film their movies in places that aren't particularly uh, very kind um, to people of different orientations. But that aside, uh, the president just tweeted out and sent a couple of tweets about um, Pride Month and about and specifically trying to call, try, trying to bring other countries along with what we are doing as the United States of America in decriminalizing homosexuality. Notice how there's no credit that you see in the media, at least, given to the administration for uh, efforts to promote the decriminalization of homosexuality around the world. Also note how Kellyanne Conway there, without getting too deep into the into the details, just pointed out how for so many uh, Democrats and leftists who are willing to hurt, economically hurt, cost jobs in the state of Georgia because the state legislature there did what it should be able to do, which is write laws about abortion. So interesting, isn't it, that there are so many uh, Democrat females in particular in Hollywood that you'll see who say, oh, you know, women of women of Georgia, we are standing with you. Majority of women in Georgia agree with the bill. So what, what does that mean? Women of Georgia were standing with you. Well, I think if you ask most most of the Hollywood and, and media libs who are disdainful toward Georgia because of this bill, and you said, what do you think the percentages of support from from women in Georgia for this bill? They'd have absolutely no idea. 
And they wouldn't even care if they found out the number was a clear majority. Uh, they think that this is this is the, the fundamental women's rights issue. Um, and this is then also echoed by uh, Kamala Harris, who was at a Planned Parenthood event in San Francisco. San Francisco, where they boo you for saying you don't think socialism is the answer to this country's problems. Uh, here's what Kamala Harris has to say about Planned Parenthood, well, at a Planned Parenthood event, which, remember, you, you cannot be a Democrat of any power or good standing unless you are absolutely supportive of Planned Parenthood. Play two. This is a party about our conviction, our conviction to make sure that every woman has the right to do whatever she chooses to do with her life and her body. Every woman has the right to do whatever she chooses to do with her life and her body. Um, that's interesting because there are a lot of things that the state says that a woman cannot choose to do with her life and, and her body. Right? We, we know this. Um, it is, in fact, and it should be, it is, in fact, illegal to try to take your own life, for example. You know, if someone's standing on a bridge and the police arrive, you don't get to say, oh, well, I'm making this decision. It's OK. You guys can go home. No, they're going to try to stop you from taking your own life. Uh, you know, you, you could not uh, you could not say as a, you know, as a 13 year old, well, it's, you know, my body, my choice. I want to get married to an 80 year old man. You know that that would not the state will not allow you to do that. That would be illegal. There are there are plenty of things that already are not. So this is this is this reductionist straw man. You know, it's it's always when you talk about the the pro-life versus uh, versus pro-abortion issue, it's n never straightforward. There, there's never a willingness to engage on the actual, is this a baby? Is this a human being? If it's a human being, does it have rights? That, that's the whole discussion. Everything else is, is some secondary propagandistic nonsense. Uh, it, it does not really mean any, it has no meaning except for the fact that it is drummed into people's heads as being what is so very, very important, particularly for women. And those of you who heard me talking to the National Organization for Women president and ask her some very straightforward questions about why do men get to have opinions on some things and not on others, according to her, uh, it was she was flustered because she's just not used to answering a real question from a person who's thought about the issue. Uh, but Kamala Harris is not going to come up with anything uh, worthwhile or interesting to say on this on this because she has to be doing exactly what Planned Parenthood wants her to do, just the way it's going to be. And Kellyanne Conway pointing out that Democrats have far less of an issue with the uh, practices of foreign countries. I mean, foreign governments, especially, let's be honest, Islamic countries get a pass from the left on how they deal with homosexuality in particular. Islamic countries are just not because they're they're non-white, non-Christian majority countries although there are both white people and Christians in, in many Muslim countries, but as they are majority and they're considered non-white, non-Christian, non-Western, leftists don't want to have too much nasty stuff to say about what they do, the terrible things that they will do to uh, same-sex couples, to same-sex uh, individuals, same-sex attracted individuals. So there's just a huge double standard because the, the so-called liberalism of the left in this country is full of contradictions the moment we take it outside u.s borders all of a sudden they fall into this uh, anti-colonial and you know, anti-western dialectic i mean they, they they turn into this well you know we don't want to be pushy about what we think they'll push be pushy about everything here in america fundamental rights they'll call them but then abroad when it comes to homosexuality and 
the decriminalization of it, uh, they, they get very, all of a sudden, they get very confused, very quiet. They don't have much to say about it at all. By the way, I mean, this is all really just, unfortunately, a function of how crazy the left has become in the era of Trump because of Trump derangement syndrome. Um, you can't expect to have a civil conversation with people anymore. It's one of the reasons why I'm, I, I'm just, I can't, I can't just sit around playing footsie with leftists. I mean, I'm, I'm a wartime conservative now, ideologically speaking. Uh, here's what lunatic leftists do in places like D.C. This happened in D.C. because a guy was wearing a MAGA hat, play clip four. System that creates cruelty. So let me tell you, little Mr. White male privileged mother when was America great for you, you little Huh? When was America great for you? When they stuck their little in all of the sick people who were in the slave ships? When was America great for you? That's the price you pay for wearing a, you know, getting yelled at like that. That is the price you pay for wearing a Make America Great Again hat in D.C. That's the price. That's what, that's what you subject yourself to. People have asked me, would I be willing to walk around D.C.? Someone actually just said it to me over the weekend. Would I walk around? Here I am in, in what is now the town that I call home, although New York is still really my home. Uh, would I feel comfortable? The answer is no. I mean, I wouldn't feel comfortable because somebody would say something. And I would say something back and we would have an incident. And you never know. I know a lot of people would say, oh, Buck, you know, you got to just, you know, tell those libs. And, you know, if they lay a hand on you and yeah, those of you who have been in scraps and, and issues in the street, you know, you know, you just want to avoid that stuff. You don't know what's going to happen. Who's going to pull what? Who's going to say you said what or did what or, you know, but you can't even wear a hat that the president of the United States wears in Washington, D.C. and feel safe. That's the America we live in now. We have a problem with racism in America today. If this country wasn't racist, Stacey Abrams would be governor. Ah, go to the racism well. When in doubt, candidate Seth Moulton would be Democrat nominee for the presidency. He knows that, that the move, the maneuver, if you want to get everyone clapping for you, just talk about how racist America is. Racist compared to what? I would always want to know. Find me a country that has our level of uh, ethnic and ideological and nation, uh, nationality-based uh, diversity and tell me and sh show me that they get along better, are more decent to each other than we are in this country. Uh, it, it does not exist. This is, the, this is the little secret that leftists never talk about here, but we are actually a, a, an incredibly uh, agreeable with each other nation state, especially given the degree of diversity and everything else that we have. Uh, you know, yeah, they, they, there's not a lot of day-to-day -day struggles with racism in Japan because it's basically all Japanese people. It's a little different. You know, they don't they don't have different races that have uh, the possibility of day to day racism. But if you ask a lot of people in some of these countries or have spent time in these countries, well, what are the attitudes of the people like? They are truly xenophobic in those other countries. They, they, they do not like outsiders. They do not want outsiders. They do not have immigration. They do not allow immigration. So I just think just start from this premise that we're always being told how racist America is. I mean, this is the. The talking point for liberals when they have either nothing to say or, you know, just want to make sure that they get a cheap round of applause. It is the ultimate cheap applause line that America is a racist country. Uh, and, and Seth Moulton is a guy who, look, I mean, he's running for president for uh, his own reasons. I, I couldn't begin to understand what they are. 
because um, he's not going to win. He's not even going to get above 1%. So why? But I suppose here I am talking about him on national radio, so maybe there's that. Um, but he says if the country wasn't racist, Stacey Abrams would be governor. There was record turnout for uh, the governor's race in Georgia. Why is racism the reason Stacey Abrams didn't win? What great background of achievement in politics or in leadership did Stacey Abrams have? No, no one, no one even really seems to ever start there. Why, why would Stacey Abrams be governor if the country wasn't racist? It's the country's fault that she didn't win the governorship? And this is a stupid statement. I mean, this is a dumb thing to say, but you know, Moulton... I'm sure he's a bright guy. I mean, I'm you know I think he has fancy schools and everything. But as you know, I always tell you the fancy schools it doesn't mean what it used to. That's all changed a lot. But it also brings me to ask the question: You know, is is it is it even possible in the mind of a leftist in America today to be racist against white people? Is that is that possible? I, I wonder. I ask the question just because. Over the weekend, there was a, a tweet from a verified account named Sarah Rao. So she's a blue check. She's one of the journalism uh, uh, cadre online. And she shared this tweet, this gem of analysis. White people have done everything to make my life miserable, yet I'm supposed to not hate white people. She's a writer and columnist for Brown Girl magazine. And she's verified. Is that okay to say? I, you know, now when I say is that okay, I'm not. I'm not calling for censorship of it. I'm not saying that it's hate speech. But isn't that racist? Isn't it for somebody who's saying that white people make her make her life miserable and why shouldn't she hate white people? That's kind of racist, right? I don't know. If you talk to leftists, they'll tell you that it's not possible because of the power dynamics at work in intersectionality. It is in fact not possible for a non-white person to be racist in America against white people. Maybe it's possible in some other country, although I think that's probably doubtful. Democrats would find that doubtful too. But if you want to test out the theory, here's an example. I mean, this is the question. Is it possible in this country to be racist against white people? I mean, that's, can, can you be hateful toward white people in a way that would be described as racism? I obviously think the answer is yes. I think this is one of those topics of discussion that were it's so radioactive you know you're not allowed to you're not allowed to go there not allowed to have this why why can't we talk about this why why isn't it worth our time to delve into whether or not america is a country where it is possible to be racist against and and then if it's possible is there a rising uh, a rising tide of racism against white people from some non-white individuals in america is that, is that a conversation that's even possible to have you might say, oh, no, Buck, we can't have that conversation. Okay, fine. Well, I, I would want to know then, how do we deal with this? There was a, a concert up in uh, Nova Scotia, and this is from the Daily Wire. Uh, Lido Pimienta, a Colombian-Canadian singer, asked audience members of color. Now, I, this is in Canada, so don't be, you don't have to yell at me or whatever, but, I mean, Canada, America, we're pretty, it's pretty much the same deal. Asked audience members of color to move to the front and white members to move to the back. Unlike other times she made that request, some white members of the audience refused to act in accordance uh, with her command, including a white female volunteer who was reportedly there to photograph the show. Now, this is really interesting. According to the National Post, 
Ali Omanikwe, I don't know how to say it, who shares management with Pimienta, said a female photographer would not budge from her position near the stage, prompting anger from some crowd members. Omanke, whose version of events was confirmed by festival spokesperson Trevor Murphy, said that Pimienta, the performer here, just kept saying, move to the back. Finally, after saying it about 10 times, white people moved to the back and the woman refused to move. Pimienta said, you're cutting into my set time and you're disrespecting these women and I don't have time for this. So you now can be at a concert in Canada, but this could apply in America too. And the person who is there to entertain you could say, white people, you have to go and have, let's be honest, the back, the back of the concert, you're going to have a worse view. So give up your place, move to the back of the venue and let people of color take your place in the front. And if you, as a paying customer at the concert, have an issue with that, you're the problem. This is the lesson you're supposed to take away from this. You are the problem. White people go to the back. Um, I'm white. I don't think that I should be judged by my skin color. I, I'm, I'm here. I got here early. I like, my, I like my position in the crowd. No, no. You have to give up your position in the crowd. You have to give it up to a person of color. If you don't, you're racist and you're part of the problem. That, that seems quite extreme, doesn't it? I wonder what the uh, the concert organizers thought of this. Oh, we know what they think of this. Again, thanks to uh, some very good work from the Daily Wire. Quote, the board of directors for Halifax Pop Explosion, that sounds like quite a party, issued this statement. We will not accept this behavior and neither should you. Be responsible for your friends. Talk to the, wait, hold on. You might be thinking, Buck, they said they'll, they will not accept this behavior. Whose behavior do you think they have a problem with? The, uh, the music act that's telling people, if you're white, go to the back of the room where you can't see? Oh, no, that's not the person who they have a problem with. Quote, be responsible for your friends. Talk to them and support them as they move toward unpacking their racism. People of color deserve safe spaces, and it is your responsibility to help. It is also ours. To the performer, Lido Pimienta, we are sorry that one of our volunteers interrupted your art, your show, and your audience by being aggressive and racist. We have so much respect for the art and music you create and the space you make for women, people of color, transgender, and non-binary people. The way you interact with the world provides such a thoughtful example. You're a role model to us. We see it. We feel it. We hope you work with us again. That's right, folks. The woman who says white people go to the back of the venue so other people can see better because white people are racist and a problem. That, that this is what they want. They, they want to work with her again in the future. She's a model for a role model for others. Now, did did one of the white people who in the crowd say something really nasty? I, I, there are some report that someone said something that was bad or, or gross or racist. I don't know. That's not I have not seen the specifics on it. I have not seen a quote about it. And it's tough to tell. I mean, is it nasty and racist for a white person to say I pay the same ticket price as everybody else? This is a standing show and I'm standing where I'm standing and I'm not going to just go to the back because I'm told to go to the back. Back of the room at the concert. It's what you're told now if you're white. And, and if you don't do it, you're a problem. I think you might recognize this mentality is not limited just to this one concert. Confront your privilege, you're told now. Confront your privilege, which means oftentimes uh, be lectured by very stupid people on the left about how you need to do what they say. You need to agree with different social policies, different political positions, 
or else uh, you're racist. This is a position of white and non-white leftists. And if you fight back against this or you reject this, you are automatically a problem. This is the country that we are living in now, folks. This is what we are, are dealing with. And that's why someone like Seth Moulton can get up and just say America is a racist country because if the country wasn't racist. Stacey Abrams would be governor and there's wild cheering for him uh, saying something that is just baseless and stupid and pandering. Americans working into their 70s. This is becoming really common. I was just talking to somebody about this over the weekend, and, uh, and now I see there's some new data in a news story here. Let me just give you some of the, the facts and figures about this. Then we can talk about how this is uh, my expectation is this is going to become the norm and that retirement is going to be something that people will think of in some ways, the way we now think about like working a seven day work week or so, it's just not going to not going to be the, the norm. Uh, but here's this piece on courts. Uh, Catherine Abraham, an economic professor at the University of Maryland, with Chad was chatting with her hairdresser one night about her retirement plans. The economist said she plans to continue working because she wants to and has no plans for retiring. The hair, hairdresser agreed, but for different reasons. She needs the money. Both scenarios are contributing to a big increase of the number of people in the U.S. working into their 70s. Over the past 20 years, the share of Americans working in their 70s has risen from less than 10% to nearly 15%, according to census data. Now, this is there, there are some good reasons for this, or at least some reasons that are, are only really positive. People are uh, living longer and healthier lives. So folks who are in their 70s now, uh, are very you know, sharp mind, uh, feeling healthy and fit and plenty of energy, and they got a, they got a lot of stuff to do. Whereas you know, even 30, 40 years ago, people in their 70s tended to just have more wear and tear on their bodies, not quite the same energy level. Um, you know, the medicine has improved, not as much as I would like it to have improved in that period, but medicine has improved somewhat. And now looking at uh, the way forward, I mean, there's, Obviously, also a major economic incentive for people to work even later. But my, I mean, my expectation is that unless you're in a unless you're in a job that has a defined benefit plan, and you know you hit your certain. This is true for a lot of public sector workers, although I think fewer now than it used to be the case. You know, you hit your your end date and you're done. You know, you hit that golden retirement day, and, and it's all over for you in terms of having to show up to an office. A lot of people are going to work in their seventies. I don't know how much that's a bad thing. I think people who choose to work in their 70s, it's probably a great thing. You stay active. You stay. Uh, but by the way, I believe uh, how old is Warren Buffett, for example? Now, he's super rich, I know. But he's just an example of somebody who really likes what he's doing. And what would he do if he wasn't doing it? 88, folks. Warren Buffett is 88 years old. And he's worth tens of billions of dollars, still drives an old car. You know, I think he likes living this persona. I don't think it's. He, he's not uh, oblivious to the fact that everyone thinks of him like America's super rich grandfather, but you know, he's a guy who likes what he's doing. It and this re retirement for some people, if you've been working in a in a manual labor job, or yeah, I get it. You know, you need to rest your body and you want to go and play bocce ball and tennis and all this stuff. If you're somebody who shows up to an air conditioned office and you're looking at a screen and you like what you do, you like your colleagues and you're making good money and. I think a lot of people, you know, that 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 number is 15 percent of Americans working into their 70s. I think you're going to see it go to 20 and then 25. I really do. I think you're going to have almost my guess would be in the next 10 years, you're going to have a quarter of people working in their 70s. And that will get closer to being, 
you know, and I think from there it probably just keeps going up too. People are living longer and just changing. Just an, an interesting little side note. It came up in a conversation with a friend this weekend. He was like, hey, man, like, you know, when, when would you want to retire? I was like, I don't know. Do I get to keep doing radio? If I get to keep doing radio, I don't think I retire at all. I retire when I don't have a voice, which hopefully that's not going to happen. Speaking of voices, I will use mine to tell you about Roll Call coming up here in just a moment. The show ain't over yet, folks. Keeping it real. It's time for Roll Call. Man, it really does feel like summer, finally. Isn't that nice? Isn't that a good thing? It's about time. Uh, let's see here. We have Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton if people want to get in on the roll call party. Matthew up first here. Hey, Buck, if you need an idea for a good show, check out The Expanse on Amazon Prime. They've got three seasons, uh, and the fourth one is on the way. If you're looking for something like Game of Thrones, only hard sci-fi, this is the show for you. It's not like Star Trek, where they have gravity panels and force fields and photon torpedoes. It's way more grounded in a way that we might actually achieve someday. You should check it out. I can't recommend it strongly enough. P.S. If you're not hooked by the second episode, the show is not for you. Well, I appreciate the very thorough and uh, helpful endorsement, my friend. Thank you so much for, uh, for writing in with it. And... Good to chat with you about it. Thank you so much. I will check out the expense. I like I like escapist fare on the uh, various channels that I watch now, and I am increasingly now a digital on demand person with my viewing. I'm 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 uh, I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna well the only reason I don't is the news, but there must be ways that I can watch news without being a cable subscriber. I think I'm gonna bail on cable if I could just get the major news channels, Fox for information, CNN for comedy, I would I would be a cord cutter because I don't watch the other cable channels. I watch digital shows a la carte. So I'm one of these uh, graybeard millennial types. Uh, Clay writes, hey, Buck, great show. One night not too long ago, you mentioned something about Drudge Report smartphone app not working. Well, there's an alternative called The Report. It has Drudge and other conservative news feeds. Thanks and shields high. Clay, I was unaware of that, so I will check it out. Apparently, there weren't that many of us who were really interested in the Drudge app, or at least I guess it wasn't popular enough that they would keep it. I love the Drudge app. I use it on my phone all the time. I don't know why it had to go away. Now they want people to go to the site site and not use the app. Well, it is what it is. Uh, Bob writes, Buck, I've tried to call you via iHeart. I'm trying to call you about a new technology we're developing etc etc personal information personal information all right bob um let me let me take a look and uh, i'll check it out john writes howdy buck i read the president made a comment on suppressors that was not positive he said i don't like them when asked about the recent shooting one of the reasons i voted for him in 2016 was to protect and expand the second amendment I understand expansion is hard because of Congress, but if he were to ban suppressors, which are highly regulated through the NFA, I will not vote for him in 2020. was wondering what your thoughts are. Well, John, as somebody who has uh, both fired a lot of suppressed weapons and has even advertised for suppressors in the past in my uh, radio, my, on my radio program, I'm obviously, I'm obviously in favor of suppressors. 
I, th- I think the hearing damage from shooting, and this will make me sound maybe a little wimpy, but I'm somebody who wants to hear as well as I can, see as well as I can, have my teeth for as long as I can. And uh, the hearing damage from, from firing guns is very real, uh, unless you have good ear pro, which I know those of you who are shooting, I'm sure you use that. Uh, but it would be nice to even dampen it down more. Um, and anybody who's ever fired a rifle with a suppressor on it knows that this is not, it's not pew, 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 um, not at all. And even a, a 22 caliber with a silencer on it, that can sound pretty, pretty darn quiet. But uh, anything above that caliber, you're going to hear it. And they're already heavily regulated. So, look, I just think the president doesn't really know anything about, I'm just going to say it. I just don't think he knows anything about suppressors and probably has a action movie view of them as you can run around with a, a silencer on an MP5, for example, and it just goes pew, 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 pew. It does not go pew, pew. So as you can tell, I like making that noise. It's much louder than that. Uh, Josh writes, Hi, Buck, love the show. I've been listening since the early Blaze, uh, Blaze days. On Friday, you hinted at a founding father that family lore says you're related to. You said the forgotten founder, so my guess is John Jay. He was a huge contributor to early America. You never hear his name. Am I close? Shields high, Josh. Josh, um, it's a good guess, but I can't say it's close because that's not, in fact, the the one that uh, I am, according to family lore, related to. According to family lore, I am related to George Mason uh, pretty directly. I mean, the family tree is like a... Well, it's not a telephone pole. That would be weird. But it's a pretty straight line, according to again, according to family lore. I don't know. I don't I don't spend as much time on these things as some other folks do. But uh, that is at least the story that we tell people drinking mint juleps at cocktail parties in the South out on a lawn, because that's how we do. John writes Shields High fan since the real news days. Man, so many of you that listen have been with me for many, many years now. And that is a huge uh, testament. And I really, really do appreciate it. I heard that the Chernobyl guy, a Russian, said something about gun deaths in America. I find this amazing that someone from Mother Russia, where a gun was made that has killed countless numbers of people, tries to make America and American guns the problem. I think a lot of times folks like this just like to throw this stuff out so they get invited to the elite parties where they serve bacon-wrapped shrimp. Commie bear lives. Uh, John, first of all, bacon-wrapped shrimp are incredible. So we start with that fundamental truth. I, I cannot just... Let that go without noting. Now, the, the real question, though, is if you could only have one, do you go bacon-wrapped shrimp or scallop-wrapped shrimp? Or, I'm sorry, shrimp, wait, bacon-wrapped scallops. <laughs> scallop-wrapped shrimp. Whoa, that was weird. I don't know about that. That's a different dish. No, bacon-wrapped scallop or bacon-wrapped shrimp. Um, i probably go the scallop, I'll be honest with you. That's a little bougie of me. As to your uh, point about Russia, I don't know who this Russian is that said this about the guns, but a lot of people all over the world try to dump on America because they make it makes them they, they think it makes them sound more sophisticated, more in touch with, you know, blah, blah, whatever. So that's not unusual, but we tend to ignore them. Uh, ben writes, your Bill Barr impression is on point. Great work. Uh, did I do a Bill Barr impression? I don't remember. If I did and it was on point, that's great. But I feel like I don't remember doing that, but I might have done it. I don't remember a lot of things that I say on this show, which is always sometimes the better things I say just come out of my mouth because that stream of consciousness and somebody will point out to me that thing you said last week about the thing. And I'll say, yeah, th- that was amazing. Did I really say that? Did that really come out of my mouth? But that does tend to happen. Here we go. Um, 
Sean says, I think it's rather appropriate and hilarious that your Joy Behar impression sounds like Harvey Firestein. Well, look, it's Joy Behar on The View. You know, here she is just getting paid millions to talk like this to everyone. You know, here I am. It's, it's got to go a little higher. You know, yeah, why is Trump so terrible? Why is Trump awful? I don't read anything. I don't know anything, but I'm on The View, and people listen to me because I wear glasses like a person who knows things. That's pretty much Joy Behar. I think you've got Joy right there. I think I managed to nail it. Roger, watch The Americans. It's a great show, Roger. That is my plan. It is top of my queue. As soon as I finish Billions, The Americans, as of now, will be next. Mike writes, hey, Buck, I turned my wife Peggy onto your show. She's a fan. Well, Mike, good job marrying a woman who has good taste in radio shows. One of our many activities together now includes you. Full disclosure, she saw you for the first time on Fox the other night and said, oh, boy. He needs to do something with that hair and lose the beard. Personally, I don't care what you look like. Just keep doing a great job. Shields, uh, shields high. And uh, Mike, you know, man, it's uh, I'm I'm just I do need to get a haircut. I will. I will. She's right about that. The hair is out of control right now. I mean, it is. The poof is whoo. The swoop is uh, is major. And as to the beard, you know, it's getting hot. So the beard may go. The beard may go. I've kept it for a while. I don't know. Um, some of my original Saturday squad is like, stop talking about your stupid beard and tell us things that are worth hearing. All right, all right. Your, your voices have been heard. Original Team Buck gets very salty with me sometimes, but they, I, know that it's, I know that it's all love, so I'm okay with it. But, you know, they'll say, like, you look like you put on a few pounds, time to get a haircut. That last segment was boring. But I know that they're the ones who love me, so it's, or that they are some of those who love me, so I'm okay. They're not the only ones, hopefully. Sometimes their love is tough. It's a, little, it's a little bit of salty love. Uh, Sandra writes, enjoyed the shout out. Workouts, by the way. The only guy who makes sense to me and thousands of others is the natural bodybuilder and coach, Tom Venuto. And he's got a bunch of books. He's excellent. He's won eight top competitions for natural bodybuilders. Yeah, I mean, Sandra, I, I'm somebody who has never had any interest in taking these. Uh, I mean, quite obviously, I've never done it. Um, so I don't have any interest in taking the stuff that makes you get like really big. But I'm I'm trying to see there. <laughs> I think it's funny when you have the conversation about, well, I don't want to get too big with muscle. No, no. The problem is I don't want to get too big with with chub. So I'm just trying to put on some muscle to avoid the getting the big with the chubbiness. Um, it's a different problem of bigness. But, you know, it's all about health. It's all about feeling good about yourself, feeling good in your skin, looking good in your clothes. You know, everyone to each his own. You know, some people look better with a little, little extra going on. Or, you know, they got their own thing going on. We live in this. Man, society is more superficial than ever before. It is absolutely true. And uh, physical beauty is more highly prized and monetizable than ever before, too. So, you know, there's all this pressure on all of us all the time. Maybe it's just like we need to all just start wearing sweats, just start hanging out, not worry about it. I'm not sure that's the idea, but it might be an idea. Uh, Let's see here. Corey, Sir Buckman, I feel I've held my thoughts back long enough on the Uber issue. Though I find myself more in the middle of the road, leaning toward your viewpoint, I also could see where it could have the potential to encourage discrimination. The phrase, try hailing an NYC taxi at 2 a.m. as a black man, comes to mind. So long as Uber employs honest brokers, it shouldn't be an issue. Shields all, uh, shields high, onwards and upwards. Tally-ho. Well, Corey, the whole uh, 
uh, getting a cab at 2 a.m. thing, I've actually done some research on this and talked about it in the past. It's not true the way people think it's true, meaning that it's not uh, discrimination against uh, against African-American passengers by uh, white drivers. It's actually almost entirely South Asian drivers in the city of New York. And the discrimination issue uh, is not nearly as clear cut as people are led to believe. A lot of times they just don't want to go. Uh, far out of Man- of Manhattan, where they have generally the fastest and the quickest trips because they don't want to get stuck in traffic or they're uh, signing off at the end of their shift. So I just I have a lot of thoughts on the NYC taxi issue. And as for Uber, no, I, I still think that it's better. Uh, it's better for people to have accountability in their business transactions. You know, if you're if you're really if you're somebody who's a really bad tipper, I don't think that there's a problem with people knowing that you're a bad tipper. I don't know. I, I think that that's fair. If, if we're allowed to if we are allowed to assess the other side, if I'm allowed to say and I have that this doctor was terrible, was a jerk and didn't know anything, for example, like get the doctor be like this patient always shows up late, um, isn't you know, doesn't want to play ball and isn't going to listen to me. I don't you know. I look you got a lot of you disagree with me on this. And I like that. I like it when we keep things spicy in the family. Uh, but I am not backing down on this position yet. I have not yet had the compelling moment of, ooh, I guess I guess they were right and I was wrong. Because I'm a radio host who's willing to say that, unlike many of them who always talk about how fantastic and perfect they are. That's going to be it for the show today, team. You're all fantastic, wonderful, and perfect. That I do know for sure. I'm excited to talk to you all. Same time, same place. Shields high.